All right, I'm going to go ahead and read you all the 81st Psalm today. Sing aloud to God our strength. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant heart with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law for the God of Jacob. This is where I had heard a language I did not understand. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you will listen to me. There shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would subdue their enemies, and I turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the uh, chance to come out here today, even though it's incredibly breezy and a little bit cool. Thank you for the people that have come out here, and uh, let this uh, service be dedicated to you and to your glory, and uh, may the uh, music and the fellowship and the sermon be pleasing to you. And in all things, let us give you the praise of our hearts and our souls that you will be magnified in them. And all of these things we state because of the great and glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
together we sing. sermon today, I'm going to go ahead and read you, rather than a psalm, I'm going to read you from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a stem from the rod of Jesse and a branch 
shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines together toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us together it's very, very windy out here, and I hope that the people can hear today, and I hope that the recording will come out okay. But if not, may our words just be pleasing to you alone. We love you and we praise you, and uh, there are many people that uh, need prayers in our congregation right now that are sick or that are traveling. You know each and every one of these needs, Lord, and I would lift them up to you individually and collectively, that you would respond with favor to the needs of the people here and uh, just take good care of them. And anybody that has problems that's listening by video, I would pray for them as well and that their hearts would be comforted and maybe they'll hear something in the message today that will bless them. But we do thank you for the chance to meet here, even on this blustery and windy day. All glory to you and thank you in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. All right, here we are. We're in chapter 7 of Genesis. We're going to do the entire chapter today. And I know it's very windy. I hope that you can hear me. Uh, I'll try my best to project my voice, but uh, if you can't hear, I apologize. It's the Lord that gave us the wind today, and uh, the Holy Spirit is certainly moving in that way. Um, we've come across a very incredulous story to most people in chapter 7 of Genesis, which is the flood of Noah. And we've come across other incredulous stories as well in the first six chapters of the Bible. The creation account itself, many people find hard to relate to simply because uh, we look at the world as billions of years old rather than the sixth day that the Bible proclaims. And we've also talked about man being created 
from the dust of the earth rather than evolving from slime, as evolution would say. And then, of course, we have the story of woman being created from the rib of a man, which many people would say, well, that's just too incredible to believe. We've peered into the account of people that have lived almost a thousand years in age, and we've also come across people that have grown to be very immense in size. All of these things have been coming at us so quickly in the book of beginnings. And now we're going to look, as I said, into the flood of Noah. It's a story that most people are aware of, and yet it is very hard for many to accept. The question is, is this story true? The Bible, as I believe, is the foundation of our Christian lives. And Genesis is the foundation of the Bible. It would be, to me, incredulous for God's word to start with a bunch of myths or exaggerations or lies. Last week, we looked at the verses which confirmed that the New Testament writers believed that the story was 100% true. And this includes Jesus the Lord, as the verses I read last week clearly indicate. He spoke of Noah as a real person, the account is literal, and he spoke of it being a global flood. So we are really left with only two possibilities. Either he was accommodating his audience, in other words, saying, well, it's a myth, but I'm going to tell them it's kind of true so that they understand it because it's part of their history, or he was telling us that the account is literal truth. Now, if you believe, as I do, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and he is the basis of our faith, then you cannot say that he was accommodating his audience. The Lord does not lie. And we, as believers in the word of God, are left then with only one possibility concerning the question as to whether the story of the flood is true or not. And it is. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is absolute truth. So as you're thinking of these things today and how it seems so incredulous, understand that this is a true account and the Lord has done this and written it down for us, for us to understand and to believe. At the same time as being a, an account of a flood which killed many, many people, it is also a story of immense love, and it is a story of faithfulness in the midst of judgment. It is love for the work of the Creator's hands and faithfulness to those who have likewise been just, who have been righteous, and above all, who have been faithful. Our text verse for today is this. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. That's Isaiah 54, verses 7 through 9. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought in our sermon today is that Noah was a righteous man. This is verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth 
all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. Noah was righteous before God in his generations. And what does that mean in the context of the Bible? And what are we to learn from it? The free online dictionary, which means that I didn't have to pay a penny to get you this definition, defines righteous this way. Moral, concerned with principles of right and wrong, or conforming to standards of behavior and character based on those principles. Moral sense, a moral scrutiny, a moral lesson, a moral quandary, moral convictions, a moral life. Now, there are lots of other definitions for righteous out there. I went through many of them, and they would all suffice. But this one particularly is good because it continuously repeats the word moral. If Noah was righteous before God in his generation, then that righteousness deals with Noah's morality being lined up with God's morality. Now, how can we know this? Morality, this is going to be a little short little lesson in philosophy. Morality must stem from somewhere. If I love my wife, that didn't come out of an apple tree. Instead, it came from somewhere else, and it is defined based on a perfect standard. Love does not simply occur by chance. And this is true for all other moral virtues. If someone bumps into my car, they're driving negligently down the road, and they bump into my car, I will get upset. Why is this? It's because I have a sense of justice and a sense of righteousness in me. And that is based on a perfect standard of these things. If this was not the case, then we would simply bump off each other like bumper cars, and there would be no repercussion and it wouldn't matter. But it does. I argue against abortion. Someone else argues for abortion. The very fact that we are concerned about the issue of abortion at all is because there is a standard on which we are arguing that premise. One is closer to the standard and one is farther away from it. But this standard most certainly exists. If an objective law such as truth or justice or Noah's righteousness exists independent of our finite minds, and it does, then it must come from a perfect mind. Now, someone else may say, oh, I disagree with that. Everything is meaningless in the end. Well, what's the problem with that particular statement? It's known as a self-refuting statement. It's self-defeating, and the reason why is because the statement that they are making is an attempt to be meaningful. When they say everything is meaningless, they assume that you find meaning in their statement. So it's self-defeating in and of itself. So even when we try to get away from meaning, all we do is we demonstrate more meaning. As I said, that's a little bit of philosophy, and this is not meant to be a discussion in philosophy, but an explanation of why Noah was considered righteous in his generation. It was because his moral code and his moral standard were aligned with that of the Creator. And this is what we need to know about this particular account in order to understand it in the context in which it's given. Now let's go back to Genesis 6, and I want to read you three particular verses that we already went through in Genesis chapter 6. The first one is this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The second verse in chapter 6 is, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And the third verse that I'd like to give you is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is what God wants us to know us 
about the state of the world at this particular time and this point in the story. But there may be something more that God wants us to infer from what we're looking at in this context if we look at it with open eyes. What was it that Adam needed back after the fall before God closed Adam? What was it that made Abel's offering more acceptable than that of Cain's? And what was it that led men to calling on the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 4, after we had discussed the line of Cain, we got into the line of Seth, and men began to call on the name of the Lord? And one more thing, what is it that caused Methuselah's parents to give him a name that was a prophecy of the flood to come? All of these things, and many more we've already looked at, are based on faith. So in the three verses that we just read here about Noah, from chapter 6, we can infer that the wickedness of man on the earth was from a lack of faith. And we can also infer that Noah was considered righteous by faith. And we can infer that the grace that he received was because of faith. Noah's morality came from faith, and it was properly directed morality. Now, Here's something for you to think about. Not everyone who opposes abortion does it because they believe that it is God's standard. It is. It is God's standard. We know that based on what we just saw. But it is the faith in the fact that it is God's standard that makes it a righteous decision with God, not the fact that the standard is held. If an atheist opposes abortion, it means nothing to God. That guy might as well go and eat children for breakfast in the morning. It doesn't make any difference. Only when faith and deeds are working together are they acceptable to God. In other words, the deeds are, by definition, deeds of faith. James brings this up in his epistle. Hebrews brings it up in that letter. And Paul says here, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Of all of the people on the earth at his time, Noah was this man. Now last week, Noah built an ark. Was that based on faith or was it based on sight? It was based on faith. God said that the flood was coming and Noah could have said flood, flood, what flood? You know, get out of my head, you voice about the flood. But instead, without ever having seen a flood and no ocean to float his ark, he began to build an ark. So remember what Hebrews 11 said that we cited last week. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. So Noah was faithful in his life, and he responded faithfully to the divine warning with more faith. After responding by building an ark, we saw in verses 2 through 6 a moment ago that Noah was told to fill the ark with the animals that God sent to him and that he was 600 years old at this time. This then would have been the year 1656, Anno Mundi. And the flood was coming in only seven more days. And that brings us to our second thought about Noah. Noah was an obedient man. Verse 7 here. So Noah with his sons, his wife and his son's wife, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah. 
male and female, as God had commanded Noah. In obedience to the divine command, Noah entered the ark, and with him went the animals and the birds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, when it says every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, it is not speaking about politicians. Instead, it's speaking about reptiles. Verse 10, and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Again and again in these verses, these nine verses that I just read, Noah's obedience is brought up. Noah was an obedient man. He was told to build the ark, and he built the ark. It would have taken him a long time. It would have taken a lot of effort and probably a lot of verbal abuse at the breakfast table every single morning. And I can just see the conversations that people had when he walked in the door of the store. But through it all, Noah remained obedient and he continued to build his ark. Here's one of the conversations that might have gone on over there. Noah, you crazy nut, with all the wood that you've uh, used for building that box over there, you could have built a tower to heaven. Say, a tower to heaven, that's actually not a bad idea. Maybe that's something we ought to think about in the future. Flood? But flood, Noah. You are a Looney Tune extraordinaire. Noah, you're nuts wasting all those trees and spending your time doing crazy stuff. There ain't no such thing as riding the high seas, and all the water in the world wouldn't be enough to float that big box even an inch off the ground. Hmm, what's that rumbling, Noah? What is that sound? As I was saying, your work is all in vain, and those animals are going to eat you poor. There's no such thing as what you're calling rain, but those clouds are sure looking strange outside the door. Anyway, Noah, stop being such a fool and preaching to me. I love you, but you're plain old nuts, you see. Judgment and punishment? What are you talking about? What is this living holy stuff you're speaking in my ear? Just a minute, I'm going to the door to shut the weather out. Them big old clouds are starting to come near. Where are you going, Noah? To that ark over there? Well, have fun, and I'll see you when you come out again. Hmm, what's this wet stuff coming from the air? This can't be what Noah's been calling rain. Woo, Noah, let me into your box. I'm getting awful spooked out here. The water, it's getting up to my socks, and it's getting quickly higher, I fear. So I can't even tell you. I can't express to you how important the concept of obedience is to God. Obedience is what leads to life, it's what leads to happiness, and it leads to a close and a personal walk with God. On the other hand, we have disobedience. It leads to loss, it leads to sadness, it leads to punishment, it leads to death, and it leads to condemnation. This is the reality of the situation for all human beings. When we are not obedient, we only bring trouble on our own selves. When we are obedient, then bearing time and chance on the other side of the, uh, the wall, I guess you would say, things will always be better off. How important is obeying the word of God? 
I can assure you that the Bible, if you've ever read it even one time, it is replete with results of disobedience. Saul is a prime example. He was the first king of Israel, and he lost the right to the kingship because of disobedience. And he, his sons, and his progeny after him all died because of this act of disobedience. Samuel laid it out to Saul after he disobeyed the Lord's command. Here's what it says. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Obedience, then, is unrighteousness because it is demonstrating a lack of faith. There's that word again. It does not matter what biblical passage or what biblical issue we look at. Faith will always be a key of that passage, and it will inevitably appear in it. Even what animals were brought onto the ark required faith by Noah. Noah was told to bring two of every kind of animal onto the ark, but seven of every clean animal onto the ark. But the Bible, to this point, has not designated which animals were clean and which animals were unclean. And this has led, believe it or not, modern scholars to say that those verses that we just read about the clean and unclean animals were actually inserted later by the priests of Israel. But there is no reason at all that we would come to that conclusion. Here's what one commentary says, and he says it rightly. For the distinction between clean and unclean animals did not originate with Moses, but was confirmed by him as a long-established custom in harmony with the law. It reached back to the very earliest times, and it arose from certain innate feelings of the human mind. Because no divine command has been given to this point about which animals are clean, the commentary correctly states that there was an innate understanding in man of what was and what was not appropriate for sacrifice. The law of Moses was a direct command from God, and it built upon these already established customs. And we can't read any more into the account than that. It was now the 600th year of Noah's life, and it says that the floodwaters came on the 17th day of the second month. This would have been right around the October-November time frame, around the autumnal equinox. While the rest of the world was sowing its next harvest, Noah was preparing for something else. While the world was probably worshiping the alignment of those heavenly bodies, Noah was busy worshiping the Lord. And while the world was anticipating its next harvest, Noah was anticipating a flood. On that very day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And it says that the rain was on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. The world, as I've said in a previous sermon, was probably a little bit smaller than it is right now. And the Bible says that it originally had a great amount of water in underground cavities. And it also had what we believe is a frozen canopy above it. I mentioned that in another sermon where the thing called the Rechia above the earth was probably frozen water, crystalline in nature. When these things broke up, a global flood was the result. If you ever look at a geological map of the earth, it looks a lot like a baseball. 
know if you've ever seen a baseball with the stitching all around it. Well, that's what the Earth looks like right now, if you see a geological map of it. But it didn't always look that way. The, when the Earth busted seams, it fractured these plates that are in the Earth at the points where the water pressure built up. Since that time, these plates have continued to move, and the world has actually increased in circumference. The frozen canopy above the Earth would have submitted to that pressure as well. And the water being spewed out of the ground and the canopy collapsing above the Earth would have caused, it would have been entirely plausible for 40 days and 40 nights worth of rain. The larger Earth now and the lack of a canopy over the Earth would certainly account for the many changes in how things are now after the flood. Noah was getting ready to go out on the greatest sea-going adventure of all time because Noah was an obedient man. And that brings us to our third thought about Noah today. Noah was a patient man. Verse 17, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth died. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground. Both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with them in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. I've read through these particular verses that I just read you probably 50 or more times in my life since I became a Christian. And until the time that I read them to type up this sermon that I'm speaking to you right now, I had never thought about the people that were in this flood. It was always just a distant account. Okay, there's a flood, people died, the earth is judging wickedness. The flood was coming to save Noah, and the wicked were going to be destroyed with that flood. But it became personal to me when I thought about those people from the perspective of the people who are around me right now who are not believers. These people that were on the earth at that time were real human beings, and there were probably billions of them just like the people that we pass on the streets every single day. They were just like our old boyfriend or old girlfriend that we still think about when our minds are silent in the evening. Or they're just like the people that we go and we see at work every single day that are so dear to us. And the people that we greet in our neighborhoods that we think, boy, that's just a really nice, wonderful person. I have friends all over the world from my travels as I traveled when I was younger. And I've made many, many more friends since the electronic age. Every single one of these people is a real person with a real beating heart. They have real hopes, they have real desires, they have real aspirations. And every single one of them is either in Adam or they are in Jesus Christ. These are the only two options that the Bible gives us. Noah was a patient man. And he certainly preached to all of these people that he came in contact with right up until the time of the flood. He did it by words, and he certainly did it by his actions. And today, even today, he is preaching to us by his actions for people who are willing to listen.
to the story of Noah. He was patient in waiting on the Lord's timing, and his patience must have included immense sadness. If I, if Charlie Garrett was to consign the world to destruction while being saved out of the world and from that destruction, my heart would be broken for the people of the world that were being left behind. I'd be telling them about God. I'd be telling them about his love for the world. I'd be telling them about living righteously. And I would be telling them about his son, Jesus Christ, and how he affects my personal life. This is what I would be doing if I loved those people that were on the highway to eternal separation from God and consignment to hell. But wait a minute. The world is consigned to destruction, and some people are going to be saved out of it, and I am one of those people. I need, in my own personal life, to get back to telling people about God, about his love for the world, about living righteously, and also about his son, Jesus Christ, and what he means to me. This is what I need to be doing, and all of us here need to be doing, if we really, really love those people. So I would ask you, oh God, to give me a heart once again for the lost people of the world, and to give me a desire to tell people about this great pardon from sin, the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, God, to break my heart once again, just like it was when I met you when I first came to you on my knees, crying in tears for months at the immense love that was displayed in my own life in Jesus Christ because these people really are on the wrong highway and they need to know about Jesus Christ. When the waters came, Noah had to be patient again. Whether or not he heard the people outside the boat, he knew what was happening and he had to wait and patiently endure the thought of every one of these people that he knew. Certainly many in his immediate family, like brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, and cousins, all being drowned by the waters around him. There were people that he played with as children and people that he grew up with. He probably waded through many painful memories. Imagine in our own lives, think of this in your own life, people that you have lost, that you loved, how crushed you were at the time. The pains do fade, but the memories never do. Noah was probably thinking about the many, many thousands of people who had come into his own life, memory after memory, as those waters rose around him. And he had to be patient at sea, too. The rains came for 40 days and for 40 nights, and they prevailed on the earth, it says, for 150 days. And all of this time, he and his seven family members had to wait in the quiet solitude while the waters raged outside of the ark. We read that the, we read that the uh, waters prevailed over the earth exceedingly and all the high hills were covered so that even the mountains were covered and they prevailed 15 cubits upward so that everything on earth was completely covered by this water. This was not a localized flood as so many skeptics try to claim. This was a global flood and every high hill and every higher mountain was covered and it was submerged. 15 cubits is about 25 feet in depth. Even the tallest Nephilim that was alive at the time, standing on the highest mountain, could not prevail over the floodwaters which came on the earth. And so everything died. And I'd like you to listen again to the terminology that the Bible uses about the death of these. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on dry land died 
The Bible says it this way and uses this exact terminology to remind us of the creation account. Right back in Genesis 1, it said that birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. In Genesis 1, these were all created by God and the terminology was used here as it was there to remind us that he has every right to do as he directs with his creation. The air in their nostrils, which is the breath of the spirit of life, was given by God. And now it was being taken away by God. And if you think about it clearly, only a perverse and a disconnected heart would find fault with the creator concerning how he handles his creation. But we do find fault. I find fault personally. Every one of us does in one way or another. Our friend dies and we find fault. Maybe our husband or our wife or one of our children will get in an accident or get a disease. They become an invalid and we find fault. Our favorite pet dies and the first thing we do is cry out, Oh God, why? All things that we see around us have an end. And mixed with joy is always sadness and loss. This is the world that we live in. And when these moments come, we are asked to lift our eyes and react in a way which acknowledges God's sovereignty. After losing every single thing, the greatest man of the East, he was called Job, after losing every single thing that he owned, except a nagging wife, the Bible says this about him. Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just like Job, Noah was a patient man. Noah waited, and he was rewarded with inheriting a new world and a new start. And waiting on the Lord is not a concept which is unique to Noah. Rather, it is something that the Bible speaks of dozens and dozens and dozens of times and in many contexts. There are examples of people who do wait on the Lord, and there are examples of people who don't wait on the Lord. And each one of us here knows already where the reward lies. The Psalms, in particular, bring up the subject of waiting on the Lord again and again by people who are in distress or people who are undergoing trials or people who are hemmed in from all sides by enemies. But you will always find the end to, of the waiting to be in the safe and in the secure and beautiful hands of the Lord. In the 27th Psalm, David says that there is no other place like being in the hands of the Lord. He says here, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And Jeremiah the prophet doesn't just wait on the Lord, expecting him to be some type of cosmic candy giver, which is going to make everything all right in the end. Instead, he hearkens back to the Lord being the creator and the sustainer. It is this loving God who created all things that Jeremiah calls out to. He says, are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore, we will wait for you, since you have made all of these. And then we have the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there is this calm assurance of the coming of Jesus Christ to set all things right someday. And in the book of James, there is what I believe one of the few truly prophetic verses 
outside of the Gospels in the book of Revelation, in the book of James. It says here in James 5, 7 through 8, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James asks us to be patient and to wait on the coming of the Lord. And then he cites the farmer who is waiting patiently for the early and the latter rains. Well, if you think about it from the context of Israel, they lacked in that land the early and the latter rains for the past 2,000 years. Because in AD 70, when the Romans came into the land and they destroyed it and they exiled all of the people, they cut down all of the trees in the land in order to build siege works against the cities that they were destroying. And because of this, it changed the seasonal climate so that the rain cycle stopped in Israel. But since the return of Israel to the land of Israel, they have planted millions and millions and millions of trees. And they have brought back both the early and the latter rains, which had been missing for the past 2,000 years. And James says, when you see this occur, it is the time to establish our hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Noah was a righteous man. He was an obedient man, a man of faith, and he was a patient man. But the Bible says that he has yet to receive the promise he waited for. Hebrews tells us so. There we see that he and the other saints of old died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A city has been prepared for the people of God. And what I'd like you to do is just take a moment and look around you at the beauty of what you see. Look at the magnificence of the beach and the wind blowing through here. And if you think about the mountains out in Colorado and the tropical islands in the South Pacific and all of the wonderful things that God has given us on these lands, the flowers and the plants and the trees and all of the animals, everything that is so wonderful. And then you can lift your eyes out nowadays with the Hubble Space Telescope and we can see out billions of miles and we can see things that are so amazing. Thousands and thousands of constellations and galaxies and stars and all of these things. And if you think about it from the context of the Bible, it took six days. It took six days for him to do all of this marvelous majesty. But when Jesus left us 2,000 years ago, he said this to his apostles, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God did all of this that you see in just six days. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years preparing a mansion for each one of us. Just imagine what we are going to behold when we see it. I just can't even believe thinking of what he has prepared for the people of God. And how do we receive our mansion? He tells us in the exact same book, the Gospel of John, and he tells us in the exact same chapter, 
And not only that, he tells us in the next verse, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I said earlier that all people are either in Adam or they are in Jesus Christ, and those are the only two options for man on this earth. We're either fallen and we're in Adam, or we're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and we are in Jesus Christ. And let me take just a minute and explain the gospel to you in case somebody is listening that has never heard this before. The Bible says that each and every one of us has sinned in our life. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible also says that the wages of that sin, what we earn because of that sin, is death. We are separated from God both spiritually and we will be physically through death because of the sin in our own lives. But the Bible also says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He gave his life in exchange for our life if we will simply accept what he has done. He's given us this book with all of these incredible stories which are truth, 100% truth, to lead us to the point to help us to understand that God hates wickedness and he hates the things that we have done wrong, but he loves us enough to reconcile us to himself through his own son, Jesus Christ. And it says, one more verse I'd like to give you is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are calling on the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He went to a cross and he died. He paid our sin debt. He was buried in the ground. He was raised by the power of God to an eternal life, and he promises the same to us if we will simply call on the name of Jesus. And so I would hope that anybody who is hearing this message would just keep it in their heart that they need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Got something to read you here. Get into the ark, Noah, and you and your household too, because I have seen you righteous before me. The waters are coming, and the ark will protect you, and I will remember you as you float upon the sea. You are righteous in this wicked generation. Of all the people on the earth, you are the only one. But you, O Noah, are not an aberration. In fact, you and the ark prefigure my own son. Bring in the animals, bring them in two by two, except the clean ones. Of those, seven you shall bring. They will keep the species alive, just as you will do. And the contents of the ark will start a whole new thing. Seven days more, and will come the flood upon the earth. And every living thing outside, I will destroy. Right now they're laughing and making noises of mirth. But in just a week, there will be no more joy. Noah was 600 when the rains finally came. Along with him were his wife, sons, and daughters-in-law. And for 4,000 years, we have remembered his name. Because God in Noah, righteousness he saw. On the 17th of the second month, the waters were on the earth. The fountains of the great deep were broken apart, and the windows of heaven opened, ceasing all the mirth. That's the day God's great judgment had its start. For forty days and forty nights the rains continued to fall, but not until the Lord had shut the ark's door, all because Noah, on the name of the Lord, did call. He and his kin were safe from the torrential downpour. Everything with breath in its nostrils died. Out of them went the precious spark of life. I'm sure Noah, inside the ark, often sadly sighed, along with his children and along with his wife. The water prevailed on the earth 150 days, and even the highest mountains were covered in the deep. Even to 15 cubits, they were hidden. So are God's ways. 
when his judgment is aroused as if woken from a sleep. There is a true ark pictured by the one Noah made. It is the safety of Jesus and our great and awesome Lord. Trust in him and his security will never fade. He will protect you by the power of his eternal word. Oh, I love you, Lord Jesus, saving one such as me. And so I come before you, humbled heart and on bended knee. Use me, please, as a tool in your unfolding plan of the love of God and the blessed redemption of man. Hallelujah and amen. Next week, we'll look over Genesis 8, 1 through 19. The sermon will be called, Then God Remembered Noah. So I hope you'll take a couple minutes and read those verses and think on them. And I can tell you that there are some really, really special treats in those particular verses, some things that I had never thought of ever before. And last night, I heard some things that just floored me. And I've been pondering them in my heart today, and I can't wait to get them out along with the sermon that I've already put together. Wonderful thing. So please be here. We'll have uh, communion and uh, song, and then we'll uh, go ahead and go to our respective ways. But I'd like to apologize if it's been a little hard to hear. I don't know how this video is going to come out, but it's been very, very, very windy. And I've been speaking, and I've actually been spitting a little bit. So anybody up in the front row here has probably gotten a little wet, and I apologize for that. But a little dry and a little bit windy, but there we go. Seth, you want to play a song for us there? All right. I actually had a couple other things I was going to read you today and do things a little bit differently, but it is so windy and so cold that I just decided to kind of stick with what we had been doing. But I appreciate those of you who have come out here. I thank you so very much, and uh, I just pray that you have a wonderful week ahead and that the Lord blesses your soul. And uh, I'll go ahead and I'll give you a benediction and we'll get out of here. I'm only going to do it in English today just so that we can make this short. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.